0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk?
2: Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just
0: a show for you.
5: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, it's been quite a run for the bulls on Wall Street as we enter the final stretch of the year. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'll have that story.
6: I'm Caroline Hepger here in London, where we're watching upcoming data for signs of the slow puncture in the UK's
7: housing market.
4: I'm Doug Krisner with a look at how the Bank of Korea might respond to vibrancy in the South Korean economy.
7: I'm Kayleigh Lyons in Washington, where Congress is set to return from its holiday break with a long to-do list.
4: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Well, good day
5: to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with a focus on the stock market. As we enter the last trading month of the year. After a slump in 2022, this year has been a good one for equity investors, particularly those in tech. Now, the NASDAQ has far outpaced both the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And right now, with inflation easing, a surprisingly strong corporate earnings season now wrapping up, and bets that the Fed is done hiking rates, we've seen, with just a few minor hits, a November rally. The big question, can it continue Well, for that we bring in Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist Gina Martin-Adams and her colleague Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Strategist Michael Casper. Thank you both for being here. Gina, I'm going to start with you. Where do you see the economy now and what do you anticipate we're going to see in the markets in the weeks ahead?
3: Yeah, so we actually have a really interesting model we call our economic regime model, which gives us a sense of where the economy is in real time. And uh, unfortunately, after the regime model was generally supportive of uh, very strong risk-taking conditions in the broader equity markets throughout much of 2023, it actually took another dip in October. And if we take a step back and we think about what this regime model tells us... Back in 2022, the regime model said that the economy was very low probability still in recovery. In other words, the economy may have already been in some form of a recession in 2022, at least according to this model, which, of course, coincided with terrible equity market returns. As the economy was decelerating, we lost a lot of momentum in the equity market as well. And then come into 2023, and the model actually signaled that we should get more optimistic. As of January of 2023, it was saying, you know, it's not going to get much worse here. Things are starting to get a little bit better. Even though that getting better was somewhat short term in 2023, it did support the rally in stocks. And now it's saying, hey, hold on a minute. Uh, Things do appear to have slowed precipitously in the fourth quarter even though the earnings recovery does appear to be underway, there are certain segments of the earnings recovery that look pretty vulnerable to a deceleration in the broader economy right now. And that could be the risk going into 2024 is the groups that really did not correct in that first dip in 2022 may be set to correct as we move into 2024. That doesn't mean the whole market Is necessarily vulnerable because we went through 2022, but it does mean that there are some vulnerabilities in the equity market, and we need to navigate those as we approach next year.
5: And are there specific segments you're referring to right now about that?
3: Yeah, Yeah. I'll let Mike talk to that a lot because he does run our sector scorecard. But specifically, the consumer sectors look quite weak. If we think about what happened in the fourth quarter earnings season, I'm sorry, the third quarter earnings season that just passed for the S and P 500 really generally pretty strong earnings emerged. X-Energy, the index, posted nearly 10% earnings growth. When we look at the whole S&P 500 at large, it looks like about 4% earnings growth. But we did start to see some downward revision momentum. We started to see some guidance, in particular, from those consumer companies. And consumer staples and discretionary do appear to be the worst sectors. Well, that said, there are some strong sectors. And I'll let Mike speak to those because there are opportunities in this environment we as well. We want some
8: strength from you, Mike. Let's hear it. Let's <laughs> hear it. Certainly, uh, communications is, is the one at the top of the list, right? So earnings have been strong in, in 2023. They're expected to be strong in 2024 as well. Um, tech is up there as well. We run a five-factor sector scorecard. And those two are at the top of the scorecard right now. It's joined by financials, which is, is quite an interesting case. Um, if you believe consensus uh, rate expectations for 2024, they're for a little bit of yield curve steepening, which should be a, a good fundamental driver for especially the banks within financials. Um, and our model's flagging financials as, as one of the top plays um, in the S&P 500, at least right now. On the flip side, I'll talk about some of the weakness, uh, definitely the defensives, utilities, real estate staples, have been consistently towards the bottom of our model in the S&P 500, um, and they're staying there at least right now. So let's let's go back
5: to the weaknesses. Now, we, we discussed the consumer discretionary, consumer staples. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, we're, we're getting some mixed signals on, on the consumer. Mm-hmm. They're pulling back, they're not pulling back. They're spending, well, gas is cheaper, so people are spending money elsewhere. Where do you see the consumer right now? And we are going, I mean, Thanksgiving's over. We are in the heart of the uh, shopping season now. Where do you see the consumer?
3: Yeah, so unfortunately, I think sentiment tells you a lot about what you need to know about the U.S. consumer. And sentiment has been deteriorating very rapidly over the last couple of months after it recovered a little bit in early 2023. And the the biggest conundrum with respect to sentiment is... This occurred without an increase in gas prices. Normally, the consumer is pretty predictable. When they see gas prices accelerating, they get a little bit, you know, they get a little bit bummed out. They don't feel great. They have to spend more at the pump. And so they spend less elsewhere. And that definitely happened in parts of 2022. But we've seen gas prices actually correcting for the last several weeks. Gas prices moving lower has not enabled a bump in consumer sentiment. So the consumer's a little bit bummed out. I think at the same time, we are seeing some minor job losses emerge, or some weaknesses emerge in the broader job market. And that is filtering through to consumer confidence. Consumers are feeling just a little bit less confident than they have been in the last couple of years. It doesn't necessarily mean the consumer has to crash. And I think that this is one thing that's really important to consider is, We all think of 2009 as the representative example, or 2008 as the representative example of what to expect from the consumer. And that was one of the single worst recessions for the U.S. consumer in U.S. history. So that's not necessarily the outlook. Just because the consumer is feeling bummed out doesn't mean that their spending has to go through the floor and they crash out and they don't spend a a dime. Yeah, that's a tough comparison. Right. It's a really (laughs) tough comparison. Instead, they may just incrementally pull back a little bit as they get a little bit more cautious with respect to their outlays. Uh, nonetheless that can have material impacts on sectors um, where earnings are somewhat sensitive to what's happening with that overall growth outlook.
5: Yeah the job market has consistently good but we have seen some cracks we've seen continuing claims rise that means long-term unemployed are having a little trouble right now and and I think that is is where we're seeing the consumer pull back, the people who said, hey, I don't know what's going to happen in, yeah. in a month or a year.
3: Yeah. And if you think about how that, though, impacts profits, and this is something that Mike and I do a lot, is really just analyze what's happening inside the profit stream for the S&P 500 as well as the Russell 2000, because profits are what drive stock prices. The economy doesn't necessarily drive stock prices. It's profits that do, right? And if the consumer is reacting because many businesses are pulling back on their investment in employment, that actually impacts the earnings stream in different ways than I think many people think. Because if we're seeing job losses emerge, which we did in in little bits and pieces over the course of the last 18 months, but nonetheless, we did see job losses emerge, if we see those job losses emerge, that means companies are spending less, which means their margins can improve, which means they actually can have earnings growth this is what took a lot of folks by surprise throughout 2023 is the earnings environment actually improved quite materially even though the economy was generally decelerating for much of this year we did see profit growth emerge in the second half of this year that's not because revenue growth got stronger it's because companies were cutting costs
5: and we've seen that in information technology mike you've seen some saying well we're maybe not gonna you
8: know buy a whole new system of computers and, and mainframes have you seen Yeah, certainly. I I think tech companies' margin has been a driver for long-term tech gains, uh, especially last cycle. And I think that's really where they're focused. They can't really control what's going on in revenues that's more economically sensitive, so everybody's going to focus on the the margin line and how they can improve their business. And I'll just add that the trends that Gina's pointing out are also evident in small caps, right? So small cap net income margins are actually starting to improve. They they hit a bottom a few quarters ago, and and they're starting to move upward. And that's causing some earnings growth in the Russell 2000 when it's been pretty much a dearth for over a year. So an interesting trend emerging there. Well, as we start to wrap up, we talked about some
5: sectors that have been in real trouble. Let's go back to the ones that are doing really well. Uh, AI-fueled information technology sector is doing really well. You spoke of a few others
8: what can investors look forward to in the in the final month of the year? Yeah, so the final month of the year, I, I want to point out though that the valuations on tech. We keep talking about tech. Um, tech valuations are the only, it's the only sector trading above its pre-pandemic norm pretty much by, by a wide margin. If you look at everything else in the S&P 500, it's cheap to that pre-pandemic five-year average. So there's a bit of a dichotomy there uh, in the S&P 500. And I'm, I'm really watching that going into the end of the year. I mentioned the communication stocks before having strong earnings growth. Communications actually is the cheapest sector in the S&P 500 right now. If you look at their mega caps, Alphabet, Meta, Disney, Netflix, all cheap to their pre-pandemic five-year averages, which is in stark contrast to everything else that's going on in tech with Apple, Microsoft, and NVIDIA trading well above those averages. So. Uh, That's what I'm watching at the end of the year.
5: Well, it's a lot to look forward to. And our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist Gina Martin-Adams and her colleague Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Strategist Michael Casper. Thank you both for being here.
3: Thank you very much for having us. Thank you.
5: Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we'll take you to Europe to see how the mortgage and real estate markets in Britain are holding up. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
9: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that?
1: Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka.
9: And I'm Skip Bronson.
5: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, as Congress returns from their holiday break, we preview the upcoming budget battles for the House in the new year. But first, in the U.K., inflation is slowing, but the Bank of England is warning against any expectations of an interest rate cut. Cold comfort for suffering homeowners following 14 rate hikes by the central bank there. Fresh data in the coming days will tell us how the mortgage and real estate markets in Britain are holding up, and for more... Let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker.
6: Tom, economists say that the UK housing market is in the middle of a slow puncture. So we're watching the upcoming data on mortgage lending and house prices carefully. Figures last month from Halifax and Nationwide showed a slight uptick in prices, but also a major slowdown in the number of sales. Economists, including our own Niraj Shah, warned that prices still have further to fall. Joining me now to discuss is our economics reporter Lucy White and our European real estate reporter, Damien Shepherd, who can tell us all about how the housing market is actually holding up. Damien, can you just talk us through where the UK housing market is at the moment? It's sort of quite difficult to discern that sometimes.
10: Yeah, exactly. I think the main two things that people have their eye on at the moment is where a house price is at and where a mortgage rate's at. Um, In terms of the latter, mortgage rates are extremely high, but steadily declining. And in terms of house prices, again, we're seeing some steady declines, but not necessarily the doomsday predictions that we had at the back end of 2022. Um, So there's some housing data coming out next week, which should point us perhaps more in the direction as to where we're going. Um, But we're in a period where buyers are, you know, looking at the market and thinking I'm priced out. A lot of them are anyway and at the same time sellers will have a lot of nerves about where the the value of their property is going so we're in a bit of a strange period as we enter the winter Mm.
6: do you expect the house prices to continue falling then and sort of how severe because as, as i mentioned niraj shah saying it's actually a slow puncture a lot of people had really thought had not you know completely discounted the idea of a crash but we don't seem to be in that position now how far how fast do you think uh, prices are falling
10: i think slow puncture is a really great definition for what's happening um i I think we're in a period where the buyers are looking at the headlines and thinking i should be getting a discount if i'm buying a property now and at the same time you've got sellers who uh, you know aren't willing to uh, come to terms with the fact that their house price is probably not worth what it was, um, you know, 18 months ago. So I think once those, you know, two things come together and uh, buyers and sellers start to see more eye to eye, then we'll start to see those house prices accelerate more.
6: Mm. Lucy White, want to bring you in uh, on this point then. The relationship between the housing data that we get and the UK's overall economic position. I mean, the housing market is, is a fundamental bedrock of the economy.
11: Absolutely. I think this is one of the tensions that's really holding back um, any further falls in prices at the moment is that actually, you know, we've had a lot of talk about a recession, but we haven't necessarily seen that yet. And in some ways, the economy has held up a lot better than we might have expected in the aftermath of the pandemic. So what's actually holding back any further declines at the moment is the fact that we're not really seeing huge losses in the labour market. You know, we're not seeing huge rises in unemployment. Um, And while there's no forced selling there's a real constraint on supply at the moment so you know people aren't being forced to sell their homes so you know there's nothing really pushing the house prices down at the same time you know we've got buyers as you say constrained by you know very high mortgage prices so i think you know as long as the bank of england base rate remains where it is at Mm. the moment you know we're not going to see mortgage rates hugely come down um a lot of economists that I'm just talking to are saying that we're not going to really see any any huge change in the mortgage rate until the Bank of England starts cutting its rate. Whether that is, you know, as the market's expecting sometime next year or, you know, the Bank of England is pushing back on that a little
6: bit and saying, you know, it's going to be later, it remains to be seen. And also, of course, the impact that people remortgaging has on consumer spending. I mean, you've got something like 1.6 million people who are still... Uh, about to face a kind of repricing in their mortgage will have to remortgage their homes. That could be a very significant effect that has yet to hit the economy. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And whether we see, you know, kind of people
11: deciding to downgrade into smaller properties uh, as that happens, it's still kind of up in the air at the moment. But, you know, as we say, uh, as you say, um, the Bank of England is... Thinking that around half of its monetary tightening, you know, those those rate hikes that have happened since December 2021, about half the effect of that has been felt in the economy so far. And partly that is because, you know, we've got a lot more people now on fixed rate mortgages than yeah. we did have in the past. And they, they're not really feeling the effect of those base rate hikes until their fixed term comes to an end and as you say several of those are going to be next year and that's when a lot of people really might start feeling the pain
6: Lucy I wonder whether you um, were struck by um, you know you are talking about young people Damien uh, that the recent surveys around the number of young people you know who especially those who are renting who are leaving London and the south east um, because of affordability issues I mean the effect again on the UK economy is, is very significant and um, in terms of you know it, the property bonanza sort of helps fuel the wealth of many millions of people but it has been really quite um destructive to opportunities for for others especially perhaps younger people
11: absolutely yeah and you know we're seeing a lot of um data at the moment saying that you know if you can afford to buy a house it's better than renting you know it's more cost effective than renting um and that's just not really an option for for so many young people, as Damien was saying, because supply is so constrained in those hotspots like London. And as you say, we are seeing more and more evidence that younger people are starting to move out of the capital to find opportunities elsewhere. Anecdotally, I've been been hearing um, from several businesses who are kind of saying, we're really struggling to recruit some of those younger graduate jobs, because people just can't afford to live here anymore. You know, they're going to Manchester or Birmingham or Liverpool. And that's going to be a real problem, I think, especially as um, as businesses try and, you know, find people at that, yeah. at that lower end of the scale. And it's worth saying as well that this is going to be a double-edged sword for Rishi Sunak ahead of um, an election next year. Because on the one hand, you know, his traditional voter base tend to be older people who don't, don't want to see a fall in house prices, you know, they're sitting on properties that they've bought, and they're very happy with the way things are going. But at the same time, the millennial generation is the first generation that isn't growing more conservative as it gets older, possibly because of you know issues like house prices, and that's going to be a real challenge for the Conservative Party as it needs to you know retain popularity among some of those age
6: groups. Mm. Um, in terms of higher for longer, then there's another argument though in terms of the Bank of England keeping interest rates you know perhaps higher for longer, which is still the the theme that officials are talking about that that actually that can be absorbed that the period of time over which will happen that it's a normalization of interest rates and that that can be um absorbed that sort of strategy how do we think about higher for longer from the bank of england i think it's something that they're really pushing on at the moment because they need to make
11: sure that those inflation expectations among you know people in the economy are anchored you know they don't want to end up in a situation like we were getting towards um you know earlier this year perhaps where people are thinking oh you know inflation's been so high for so long that i don't believe it's going to come back down to 2% which is where it's supposed to be and for that reason they start you know bargaining up their wages again inflation ends up in a sort of self-sustaining doom loop, essentially. Mm -hmm. So the Bank of England really is kind of trying to hammer
6: home that message that we will stay high for as long as we need to. Thank you to Bloomberg Economics reporter Lucy White and our European real estate reporter Damien Shepard. Really great to have you on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Caroline Hepker here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6 a.m. in London. That's 1 a.m. on Wall Street. Tom.
5: Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak weekend, it's a big week ahead in South Korea. We'll get a preview of what we can expect. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
9: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that?
1: Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka.
9: And I'm Skip Bronson. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two.
1: This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app,
9: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Will the Bank of Korea... Keep the door open for another possible rate hike from the current 3.5%. Or will it keep its restrictive policy in place for longer after prices rose more than expected last month? For more... Let's get to Bloomberg Daybreak. Asia co-host Doug Krisner.
4: Tom, there are several positives for South Korea. Exports are recovering. The labor market has been resilient. And the economy is still expanding. Now, the glaring negative. South Korea's household debt increased last quarter to a record. We want to take a closer look now with Bloomberg's Paul Jackson, who covers the economies of South Korea and Japan. He joins us from our studios in Tokyo. Paul, it's always a pleasure. So South Korea has avoided recession. We know that. The of Korea was one of the first global central banks to hike rates. I think there was a total of about 300 basis points in tightening between August 21 and January 23. Now, since January, the BOK has kept that key rate restrictive, and it's done so for five consecutive meetings. So we have a policy meeting in the coming week. I mentioned the fact that household debt is elevated. It seems like tighter credit conditions are warranted. So what's next for the BOK?
2: Well, I think they're going to keep with this hawkish hold stance. It makes a lot of sense for them. Uh, They kind of threaten uh, to go higher. They talk about taking rates higher if needed. Uh, But really, I think we've got into a situation where it's about keeping the rate where it is at 3.5%, which is the highest it's been since 2008. So it is pretty restrictive and it's a case of keeping this in place for longer rather than going higher and we spoke to um, an uh, ex-board member uh, just uh, earlier this month and that was kind of a view that he adhered to that it's a case of uh, sticking at this 3.5% for uh, longer rather than pushing it higher. Now we have seen some challenges to the central bank's inflation view uh, and for economy. Too because we're up to 3.8% again, and uh, you know, we were down in the 2% uh, range earlier in the year, so uh, things have been uh, heating up. This is not exactly what you're wanting to see (laughs) if you're an inflation fighting uh, bank, but given these, uh, you know, household debt concerns uh, and so on, I think they just want to keep it at the sweet spot of 3.5%. So,
4: is anyone concerned about stress in the overall financial system as a result of household debt being? So high, has that been a concern at this point?
2: I think it has been a concern. And uh, in in terms of uh, dealing uh, with that issue, um, I think the property market is a a key uh, supplier of this uh, household debt, a key factor in this household debt. So it's been a case of ensuring that the uh, property market doesn't uh, crash. Now, in actual fact, uh, while there was a a, a fall in in prices, uh, everything's uh, on the rise again. And that's been one of the uh, reasons why the uh, household debt started to uh, rise again. So I think some of these measures that the government took to ensure that the property market didn't crash Um, maybe have been a bit too successful Hmm. and are now feeding into the debt so maybe it's a case of the government needing to pare back some of its extra measures to support the property market that's the better way forward than getting the Bank of Korea uh, to change policy which is more like moving your super tanker in the ocean it's not
4: something you want to do lightly so very quickly what did the government do to support the property market to keep things from crashing
2: well, I think it's just a case of uh, enabling people to take out uh, uh, loans to uh, buy property and also to support um, those uh, owners to looking to turn over their properties and uh, uh, put more out into the uh, into the market, keeping the liquidity uh, uh, going and in place.
4: It's South Korea is such an important bellwether for global trade. I think exports account for roughly 40% of GDP. We're talking about semiconductors, we're talking about automobiles, even car ships. How is the export side of the economy functioning, and given the fact that you know China is still weak, we've got weakness in Europe? I mean, is that showing up in the data?
2: Yeah, I think we're you know we are seeing uh, that the figures uh, not not just uh, in in uh, South Korea but also in Japan and around the region still uh, fairly feeble for China but uh, showing signs of uh, of improvement. Uh, I think the overall export picture is starting to look rosier for uh, South Korea. Uh, We have had uh, the first rise year on year uh, last month, and uh, we've got preliminary data for November also pointing to uh, a further gain. this month and uh, remember the exports did help uh, lift GDP in the last quarter we're expecting uh, year-on-year growth to be about two percent in the last quarter that's the economist's view uh, so that should uh, take us to about 1.4 uh, percent for the for the year which is in line with uh, IMF uh, forecasts a note also that the IMF uh, released its report uh, last week on South Korea and says hey Bank of Korea should really just stay where it is keep policy uh, going and And uh, exports should help to lift the economy next year uh, for uh, growth over over 2%, 2
4: 2.4%. Obviously, the currency is a big part of the trade story, and the Korean won has been holding up reasonably well, uh, particularly against the dollar. If the Fed now begins to make a minor change in policy, let's assume for the moment that the Fed is on hold, and maybe, in fact, we do get rate cuts mid-2024, what would be the outlook then for the Korean currency? Wouldn't it strengthen, and might that not be a negative when, the, when you consider the trade story?
2: Well, I think that the one has been at very low levels. Uh, We're in a better position than we were a year ago. I mean, in the fall of last year, it was uh, pushing uh, 1,450, which was uh, seen as very, very weak for for the one. We're in a better place now. We're below 1,300. So, uh, hey, a bit more strengthening. I don't think that's going to be too bad. And I don't think policymakers are going to be too concerned about that.
4: It's really been the, the weakness that has been... Uh, the concern up till now. So we were talking about the importance of trade, and I know that the South Korean president was recently in the UK looking to establish uh, a free trade agreement. What do we know about that?
2: Uh, yeah, so um, President Yoon has been in the UK this week. He met uh, King Charles III and also uh, Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak, and uh, they essentially launched uh, kind of officially the uh, trade negotiations uh, between the two sides. Now, if you think back to uh, Brexit's, when the uh, UK left the EU, um, you know they had to quickly renegotiate. Uh, trade agreements with some key countries, and Korea was one of them. But essentially, all the conditions in the agreement they've got in place at the moment are just like copycat. You know what they had during uh, the time of uh, ent- uh, ent- uh, uh, membership of the uh, EU. So now uh, these latest round of negotiations should give uh, you know more more concrete signs of whether uh, you know there's an actual change in the trade relations that's more favourable to both countries. And let's face it, for the EU. Okay, that's probably more important to them because they've got to justify this uh, move out of the EU, which hasn't been a great success so far.
4: Yeah, yeah. And I would imagine a lot of the focus is going to be on critical technologies. I'm thinking artificial intelligence, quantum computing, semiconductors, obviously. Do I have that right? Yeah,
2: that's right. The cooperation is going to be a lot of that. Um, uh, they have announced uh, more research funding uh, for uh, UK and South Korea to be looking into those areas of uh, uh, artificial intelligence semiconductors, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, so that's a, a key point of the cooperation between the two sides.
4: Paul, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time to chat with us. Uh, Bloomberg's Paul Jackson. He covers the economies of South Korea and Japan for us from our uh, bureau in Tokyo. I'm Doug Krisner. You you can catch brian curtis and myself weekdays here for bloomberg daybreak asia beginning at 7 a.m in hong kong 6 p.m on wall street tom thank you doug and coming up on bloomberg
5: daybreak weekend the house getting ready to return from its thanksgiving break with a very long to-do list for lawmakers as they head back to the capitol i'm tom busby and this is bloomberg
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
9: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that?
0: Skip,
1: who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka.
9: And I'm Skip Bronson.
5: I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. And it's a busy week on Capitol Hill as lawmakers return from their Thanksgiving break. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines.
7: Yeah, Tom, after enjoying the Thanksgiving holiday at home with their families, lawmakers may find their thankfulness slowly morphing into dread as they return to Washington to face a lot of business that they have to deal with. And it might not be easy. Joining us now for more on the long to-do list, Bloomberg's Billy House, who covers Congress for us. So, Billy, first and foremost, let's talk about funding, because, of course, before they left for Thanksgiving, Congress passed a continuing resolution, kicked the can down the road to two different funding deadlines, January 19th and February 2nd. It still might be far away enough that they aren't going to face the real pressure to get it figured out for a while. What's your sense?
12: That's absolutely correct. What they did was avoid what we've seen in recent years, a a jamming by one party or the other of a bill right before Christmas. But what new speaker Mike Johnson did do, and the Senate followed up by approving it, was pass a CR, or current funding levels, uh, a different approach, a two-step approach. that would see some agencies come up for uh, expiration of, of that funding in in on January 19th and others on February 20th. That's a two-step sort of now deadline that he faces. That might have seemed like a good idea, but as the days go by, uh, mm-hmm. we see more of his people upset about that approach, saying it's it's a very very much like his predecessor, uh, Kevin McCarthy, as speaker, and relied on Democratic votes to get passed in the House. So uh, there's been a lot of upset over that, and that will play out over the next weeks.
7: Yeah, exactly. It's very similar in that it was a clean, continuing resolution, no spending cuts included, and passed with overwhelming Democratic support. And yet, it seems like, at least for the time being, Mike Johnson, the new speaker, got away with it. I just wonder how long, realistically, that grace is going to last, how stable a footing his speakership is on.
12: Well, it is It is uh, the same mass that plagued uh, or bedeviled McCarthy uh, uh, with the filling of a, uh, a new swearing in of a Republican uh, this week uh, after last week's election in Utah. Uh, Johnson can only afford to lose uh, now, Four Republican votes on party-line votes. That's the same math that that led mm-hmm. McCarthy to have to make deals with Democrats on almost every spending bill. That's not going to change for Johnson early next year. And so the question is, he has said he's not going to do any more stopgap spending bills known as continuing resolutions, as he just did. But how is he going to pass anything without Democrats? And that's going to be the big deal when his conservative far-right rank uh, far right rank, uh Flank, uh wants mm. deep spending cuts and changes to policies,
7: and of course, that's just on the appropriations side of the equation. There's also the question of emergency funding for Israel and Ukraine. Is is that realistically something that could happen before the end of this year?
12: That's the goal is to do it by mid December or by the end of the year. But Senate and, and Senate supporters of the Ukraine aid, anyway, uh, in both and backers in both parties are negotiating. Um, on some way out of that uh, the outlook in the house again is murkier because uh the the conservatives there the are demanding uh stark immigration changes uh as part of that package and the senate democrats who control that chamber just aren't going to go along with some of the things that are being floated by the house republicans so that's still murky and then there's of course uh, the aid to israel Mm-hmm. As time goes on and more and more public opposition or uh, the polls start showing less uh, support for uh, continuing levels of Israel funding, uh, that's murkier, too.
7: All right. Well, I guess we'll see. I would imagine that George Santos wasn't feeling super thankful this Thanksgiving. Billy House, Bloomberg congressional reporter, thank you so much. And Tom, again, that to-do list is long.
5: Thank you Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.